Hey everybody, Michael Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And today I have a special guest on here with me today. I am talking to Raz Ali. We are going to be talking about M&A. So we're going to be talking about acquisitions and different things like that. Really fun topic that I like to talk about. Raz, before we get started, why don't you hop on, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what your firm does. Well, Michael, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Certainly appreciate that. I'm excited to be on this podcast. My name is Raz Ali. I'm with the Ravax Group. We are a sell-side M&A advisory firm. In layman's terms, we evaluate and sell privately held businesses in the lower middle market space. For those of you that don't know what lower middle market is, depending on who you ask in the industry, people have varying opinions of it. But I define lower middle market as businesses that are privately held generating between $3 million to $250 million in revenue. Nice. Tell me a little bit before we get into this, a little bit about like the stats on say your firm versus some of the other firms that are out there, just to kind of give folks an idea of your expertise as a company in mergers and acquisitions. It's a fair question, and it's going to sound like it's a little braggadocious, but I certainly don't uh, <laughs> intend on being that way. We should first start with when listings hit the market, how many of them actually sell? Oh, that's so a good con- one. So in the continental United States, 15% of the businesses actually sell that hit the market. It's a daunting number, not an exciting number. It can be disappointing uh, if you're trying <laughs> to sell your business, right? It really is. And you know there is a science behind it. It's not an easy thing to do. I always tell my fellow business owners, one of the toughest things you'll do in your life is to sell your business. Do our level best to mitigate the toughness of that and make sure that it's as smooth as possible. But we essentially sell 95% of the businesses we take on. And the reason behind really that is that we conduct preliminary due diligence as rudimentary as it sounds. It sounds like every M&A advisor should be doing that. You'd be surprised that the focus sometimes is taking the listing agreement so nobody else gets it and then working backwards and start to evaluate the business. So prior, it's kind of like, you know, you give a behind the napkin evaluation. Not the best way to work. We actually do not sign any listing agreement until we've done a 360 review of the business. Some other stats are that we've consummated over 700 transactions a little over $1 billion in transactional value. $250 million of that comes from the GovCon space. So we're um, pretty inundated in the space. We understand the space really well. We know the buyer base. And we have a lot of experience in navigating some of the choppy waters that this space comes with. Nice. I wanted to get that out of the way up front because I think it's really important for people to understand. (laughs) Not only are you a guest on the show, but you're an expert in this. You're not just another firm that happens to do this stuff. When we met at the 8A conference recently, and this is sort of a plug for going to conferences, it was probably two minutes into our conversation. I'm like, we need to do a podcast on this because you guys clearly know what you're doing. And quite honestly, I think for a lot of our clients, there's an overwhelming amount of them that when they come to us, part of their goals, like literally in session one, they say, my goal is to build this and sell it. It's like an overwhelming amount of people that get into this industry that want to do that. And I think for a lot of those folks, and especially if you're just starting to listen to this podcast, you're like, I'm not sure if this one's for me yet. I'm not necessarily sure if I'm ready to sell, if I want to sell. I think the best time to listen to a podcast like this is probably two or three years before you're ready to sell so that you can understand some of the things that go into this. I do see too many folks that come in at the last minute and they're like, Hey, I'm burnt out. I'm ready to get rid of this thing. I want to put it on the market tomorrow. Kind of almost like a used car, right? And it's like, but you haven't done any of the work to prep it for sale. And so I think it's important to have this conversation now and talk to this. 
If you're struggling with your government contracting business, I want to encourage you today to go sign up for a free coaching session with me. You can go in the description of this podcast. There's a link to my calendar and you can go pick a time where we can sit down for 30 minutes, talk about what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you should change. And then if coaching makes sense for you, I'll actually go over the options on how you can get started with coaching so we can take your business to the next level. Now let's get back into this episode. So uh, again, like a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to, their dream is I'm going to build it. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to retire yeah. on the beach and make yeah. all this money. So let's start off with what are some of the common mistakes that you see business owners making before they are putting their business on the market? Wow. You came in with a loaded question there. Great question, by the way. A course can be taught on the litany of mistakes that entrepreneurs and business owners make when they're not properly guided or they bull rush into the market. But there are a few top ones that I can cover here to address the question. What I'll do is go through all of them and then unpack each. Definitely going to market without properly being evaluated is something that's very common. You got to have a 360 evaluation before you even go to market to get a consensus of what you should expect. Otherwise, you'll be pretty disappointed if you don't get that. Number two is going to market for the wrong reasons. Working with the wrong M&A advisor is certainly yeah. there. Poor quality, poor lack of financial support documentation when going to market. Can't stress how important that is. You got to have those things teed up. That's where preparation really kicks in. Last, a lot of folks don't know this, but marketing your business with the desired price, never a good idea. Nobody pays for more than the price you put, right? So you're kind of hurting yourself there. Beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. You may have mm-hmm. synergistic and strategic purchasers out there that may look at your business differently and therefore offer a premium value for it versus institutional acquisition parties that are just looking at the bottom line and providing new cookie cutter evaluation. But really going into the first part, going to market without properly being evaluated, this is very important for business owners to have been given not only an opinion of value from an M&A expert, but also to be advised if their business is ripe for an exit. It's very important to understand that. And you will uncover that a good M&A advisor will be able to peel back those onions and be able to tell you that, you know what, for example, things like, you know, if their business is negative trending in financials, or if the financials are up and down in recent years, meaning that they're volatile, then certainly the business is multiple and evaluation will be affected. Same goes for revenue by customer concentration. If any customer makes up more than rule of thumb is 20% of the business, it would be deemed as risky for the acquisition party, the acquisition party's eyes. So flattening that concentration means flattening the risk that would be perceived. It would be perceived better in the market if that risk was flattened. So hence, a more favorable multiple evaluation will be given. If there's things in the pipeline that can help you do that in the near future, well, you should hold off to get the optimal value for your business rather than rushing in. This is a business owner's life's work. Timing is equally important. You want to make sure that you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. There's a fruit that comes with having patience. Business owners, you know, I would say essentially we all know wear one too many hats and they are the business in some cases, right? Wherever industry you're in. So oftentimes there's no second or third point of failure beyond he or she. So in other words, having a robust management structure that is very important gives the business a quality image and that the businesses will still function in the absence of the business owner. It's very important that that is displayed. And buyers, uh, they smell that really quick when you're wearing too many hats and they also realize, wow, this is a liability. If God forbid something happens to Joe Smith, who owns the HVAC plumbing company or the IT services company, what are we going to do? That responsibility needs to be spread out amongst the management team. 
longevity of the business's existence is very, very vital. If the business doesn't have enough historical financials for buyers to analyze, then it makes the business less attractive. Rule of thumb is a business should minimally be in operation for at least five years before trying to exit. As a firm, we like the businesses to be in operation as long as possible, but 10 years plus is our average. I think the last thing on this point is something that's very easy, but pending lawsuits or litigation on the business. The buyer is going to discover this during your due diligence. It's a huge deterrent for any transaction to take place under those conditions. And valuation is certainly affected. If not, it makes the business somewhat unsellable. So it's important that all pending lawsuits and litigation, no matter how minor or severe they are, be settled prior to going to market. It's just not smart to have any type of those contingencies out there. The next one I want to hit on is, is my favorite is going to market for the wrong reasons. I can't tell you how many times I experienced this, right? Is that buyers are so good at smelling blood in the water. We say in M&A, always the best time to exit is when you absolutely do not have to sell when everything is green and the business is going very well unfortunately as MA practitioners we experience the latter where folks are selling due to an economic downturn or recession health issues labor employment issues divorce or partnership divorce better mm. yet or major consolidation in your business which you have no choice but to sell because you're going to be mm. on the island in a few years and it's going to be unsellable those things will almost always result in less of a favorable multiple and market evaluation of your business and in some cases make it very hard to sell working with the wrong m a advisor is a big one as well the sale of privately held businesses is still you know michael largely unregulated Hence, there's many M&A advisors that may lack proper experience or credentials. It's important, absolutely important for a business owner to conduct their own due diligence to make sure the M&A advisor or the Southside Investment Banker has experience. I think I alluded to earlier that when businesses in the U.S. actually hit the market, only 15% of them sell. Well, 15% is a lucky number here because 15% of the practitioners that do sell-side M&A, meaning 85% of them are the Wild West. They don't hold the prestigious accreditation such as the MAMI, which is Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary, or the CMNAA, which is the Certified Mergers and Acquisition Advisor. This is basically the gold standard in our industry. In the near future, this industry is perceived to be very regulated, and these accreditations will be the gold standard and will be required. So make sure your M&A advisor has one or both of these before retaining them. You'll be very surprised to see that oftentimes they don't, maybe eight out of 10 times. You know, having these accreditations demonstrates to the business owner that you're working with somebody that's a committed and career M&A professional, not a fly-by-night sell-set M&A professional that's kind yeah. of added this to their advisory firm. Because a lot of times you see that when folks decide to sell a business, Michael, they go to their inner circle. And their inner circle is what? Their wealth advisor, their transactional attorney, their yeah. banker. They go to them, right? And oftentimes what's happened is everybody knows so CPA firms like KPMG or Conan Resnick or RDO, PricewaterhouseCoopers, these were traditional accounting firms. Now they all have an M&A advisory wing to it. That's not by surprise. Why that's happened is because they're that inner circle. And when folks have come to them, they're like, you know what? We should open up a practice for M&A and try to see if we can monetize off it, right? Not to say right. they're not seasoned in it, but that's not where they started out. And same thing with wealth advising firms. They have a M&A advisory. And so many of Raymond James or you know Merrill Lynch's of the world. It's important that your M&A advisor is not wearing too many hats, that they're strictly in right. the business of sell-side M&A. My rule of thumb is very simple. Try to work with advisors, no matter in what form, whether it's M&A or whether it's even getting work done in your house that has come by a reference, either by a colleague, 
or a fellow business owner before searching the web. That is the strongest indication, right? If you know somebody mm. that you've trusted has exited from a quality M&A professional, that's the first place to start. You should definitely look into that. I do. You know, I'm a very reference-based person. And I think the hallmark of any successful sell-side M&A shop is that majority of your business is going to be reference-based. Nobody's just going to entrust their livelihood in your hands without them knowing somebody that they love to trust to sell their business. So almost 90% of our business is reference-based. I think that some M&A advisors are keen to hit the market without having proper structure or process in place. A poor structure or a lack of one thereof will affect the business's credibility and deter buyers from working with the M&A advisors. Key word is the buyers will not want to work with the M&A advisor regardless of how good the business may be. So make sure you have the advisor explain to you their pre-market and post-market structure prior to retaining them. That has to make sense of what they're doing because if it makes sense to you, it's going to make sense to the buyer. So that's always good to pick up on that. Poor quality and lack of financial support documentation when going to market. Perception is everything in M&A. And when your business is on the market, one's lack of preparedness absolutely will show. So if the buyers have a hard time finding basic metrics about your business, they will lose interest very fast. They'll put your listing on the back burner. Our firm has a due diligence checklist that we use that is similar to what a private equity firm or a family office, or even an underwriter that's underwriting the loan for the bank will use. We look at a deal from every single lens of the stakeholders that are involved. And we're extreme in that regard, but not knowing the whole scope pre-listing mm -hmm. allows us to find what? Holes in the business that we can perceivably patch up or find the skeletons and where they're buried and get out front of it before the client finds it. It looks a lot better when you're telling buyers the perceived issues, and this is what we're doing to mitigate it. It tells them that you already have a plan for mm -hmm. things that would be perceived as a risk. And you're not and hiding maybe, anything. I think that's it, important. We're not hiding anything. It's all out here in the open. It's all in the open. It's better that you tell it up front because the worst thing that happens that oftentimes I see folks that had a bad experience with one of the colleagues in our profession, I'm an advisors, and they come to us and say, you know what, we were not prepared. And as a result of that, things came up during the due diligence process. And boy, were we renegotiate on price heavily. Because let's yeah. face it, another name for due diligence is renegotiation. That's the whole premise. Right. Of it. Otherwise, right. folks would just take the information you provide and close the deal, right? They want to see where the customer concentration is, if there's a supplier concentration. They want to see how the financials are interjecting. Is the industry becoming obsolete? Is it being consolidated? So they already have things that they want to look at. But if you get out front of it, you're really mitigating that risk. So when an yeah. offer is put and it goes to when a letter of intent, what we call it in our industry, is put and the due diligence process starts, you have a high probability of going to close. The lack of preparedness and financials is what contributes to that 15% awful statistic where deals really blow up and don't go to closing yeah. and have to restart again. I have a question about that. Where in the process of due diligence do owners wind up interacting with buyers? How far down the due diligence process before, as me, a buyer says, well, I want to talk to the owner. Where does that come in usually? Yeah, that's a very good question. Buyers talk with our client. Obviously, when the listing's on the market, they're under a very strict NDA. We have vetted them financially to make sure that they have the financial capability to acquire our business's size. And then we give them access to a data room. It's a repository of very robust set of documentation essentially what I was saying that we're giving due diligence up front. Once the buyers had a chance to digest that, 
that gives them a really good indication because it's so much information already. It's typically good for a due diligence process. That's what they request. So we're giving that right. in advance. That gives them an indication whether this is a business they want to move forward with or not. If they decide they do want to move forward, we have another conversation or two with them. And naturally, the next step after that is to have what we call a management call. It's the same thing as a buyer-seller call. The reason why we have that step in place, it's very important as an M&A professional and even on the behalf of the interests of our clients. We know that they're probably ready to put an offer, it is very important to get some FaceTime with our client and vice versa for our client to get FaceTime with the prospective purchaser. And that is the first time that they actually speak. Typically, today's world, that's done over a one-hour Zoom call. The old days pre-COVID, that was done in person. I'm so old-fashioned. I still try to do as many in-person management meetings as possible. But after that meeting, the expectation is that we make it very clear that there's no further dialogue. And the next step is that you have to submit a letter of intent. And as gutsy as that is to say that, our process could command it because we did the legwork up front, gathering so much information. So we now want to make sure that, look, you've reviewed the information that's in the data room. You've had a chance to talk to my client and address the questions that you had from your review of the documentation. What else is left? Put an offer, right? Yeah, there's nothing left. How many deals would you say typically blow up? And I'm not necessarily looking at your firm, but like in the market, how many of these deals typically blow up when you do bring the management in? And even though you or whatever firm has done all of the preliminary work, the owner can't answer the question. Is that like one of the ultimate deal killers usually? You hit something that's very profound in our industry. I'll tell you that I always say as an M&A practitioner, three things move deals. Okay, One is quality of the seller, quality of the packet and making sure that your client is okay with the price expectations that you're putting out. Even though we're not pricing businesses in the lower middle market, we still know the science behind how businesses in different industries are evaluated. So they need to be okay with that price. But going back to quality of the seller, it's so important that a seller from the get-go in our early dealings when we're getting to know each other, we see that one, they're earnest, they're honest, they articulate themselves well, and they're likable. They're approachable mm. because in the end of the day, the popular notion is the sell side M&A advisor is the one that's going to sell the business. No, no. The seller is the one that sells the business because right, he's right, the right. one the buyer is going to look at to help him transition. So if they don't see that personality shine through, or if they see that, you know what, this person is going to be very difficult to work with, or I'm not really understanding how did he grow this business to this <laughs> size and he can't even <laughs> yeah. articulate the product and service, yeah. then that is a no-no. I mean, I'll be honest, we cast that so early on that we probably won't even take a listing. We see those red flags from a seller. Another thing is that we do prep the seller. Look, for most business owners, it's the first time they've ever have yeah. sold the business. Yeah, it's so the most grueling is, interview they're ever going to go it is, right? <laughs> through so their life. So, and, yeah. and that is why in prepping them, we're actually holding all the cards every step of the way because we're asking the buyer to send over the list of questions ahead of time. So we have an opportunity to play, go over those questions and also, you know, go over the areas to stay away from. Don't go down a rabbit hole. Don't talk mm. negative about your business. Let them do their due diligence, right? right Don't be that right. person. I can't tell you early on when I started this career, I mean, I just didn't understand human intelligence as much as I do now. But you'll see clients say, you know what? The only thing wrong with my business is that I just wish I had better employees. He's just <laughs> an honest blue collar manufacturing worker that has like a $50 million company that has like a $5 million EBITDA. And you're sitting in front of a landmark acquisition party, a, a private equity firm. And you're just layman's just, terms. I know you're just speaking. 
just bashing your business. Don't do that. Yeah. They're like <laughs> the know? price is just dropping and dropping and dropping. Yeah, your job is yeah. to hold your business with high standards because positivity breeds positivity. Folks yeah. see your enthusiasm. I try to tell my clients that when you're on these calls, that's your time to shine. This is your time right. to talk so good about your business and how you built it and be proud of yourself. That's what people want to hear. They want to work yeah. with people that are proud of what they built. Nobody wants to work with somebody that's a Debbie Downer. Yeah. You know, when I'm talking to my clients and they're talking about the future, possibly selling and things like that, I know as silly as this might sound, a lot of times I'll ask them like, do you watch Shark Tank? If you don't, you should start watching it and yeah. look at the questions they're asking and look at how they react because the questions are very similar. What is your cost to acquire a customer? Do you know those kind of things? Do you know what your overhead? They start going down this path every single time and the yeah. companies that can answer that progress through the questions and they get to tougher questions. And then you've got people where I've seen Mark Cuban do this a bunch of times, Mr. Wonderful do this a bunch of times where they'll be going through and they're like, love the business, but I hate that guy. Hate yeah. that guy. And yeah. I don't care. There's no way I'd be in business with them, even though I know I could make a lot of money because right. the person is, they're arrogant. They're just being a jerk. They don't know what they think they know yeah. about how they're doing things. They're being too greedy about something. They just let on like, hey man, there's just no way this is going to be a good relationship. My favorite quote that I use all all the time in almost every business situation is from Hershevik. You know, he has the quote, how it begins is how it ends. And that is like a pillar in my life when I am dealing with a client, when I'm dealing with a situation, a teaming partner, whatever it may be, you're just like, man, I just don't like this. It's not good. How it begins yeah. is how it's probably going to end. And right. I've got to think, you know, this is probably one of my questions for you is a lot of times, especially everybody that I know that's gone through a transition like this, they have signed some sort of post-transaction agreement, whether it's three months, six months, a year to stay on as a consultant, to stay on as the COO, to stay on as something through that transition period. And I've got to think, kind of like you were saying, they, they just kind of smell it in the water of, as soon as I buy this company, this person is going to be going around telling everybody you know, negative things about us and people are going to be leaving or they're going to be recruiting to take them to a new business or, hey, I'm just not going to like waking up every day and having to be across the Zoom from Bob because Bob yeah. is just negative and I'm not going to be able to do it. How many times do you see that where that is a requirement of the deal is for some sort of transition period with the owner or close management team? Is that all the time? Is it half uh, the time? For us, as a firm, for us, 100% of the time. 100%. That goes into that notion where I was saying quality of seller is very important. So one is obviously the demeanor and ethics of the seller. But the other notion of it is, do they stand behind their business? Nobody's going to buy your business if they feel like it's a selling bad situation that you want to retire right away or even stay on for a short term period, three to six months. When we take a listing on as a firm, we tell our clients, if your goal is to retire in the short term, I'll tell you what short term is one year minimal transition. You absolutely have to provide that. If our client pushes back on that, that's a red flag for us. And we typically don't represent because that affects the valuation of the business. That goes into the quality of it, the quality of the business owner. Successful business owners that have built a beautiful business, they stand behind their business and they're really concerned about its legacy. And the ones that are concerned about their legacy, why wouldn't they want to stay on? It's in the best interest for them to stay on to see how the business will blossom going forward. And it also gives the acquisition party confidence that they're working with 
with the right people. But to ensure that happens, acquisition parties are very sophisticated. They have different measures to tie folks in, right? Nobody gives 100% cash out. What they do do is we'll give maybe 75 to 80% cash, but put in creative financial instruments to ensure that they're going to get the level of support they need, whether it be seller financing, a small note, maybe 10 to 15% or 20% seller financing note, or a retained equity, right? To make sure that the seller's interest is aligned and they're heavily vested in the business's success going forward. So they have different mechanisms that they use to ensure that actually happens. Yeah. Given where the economy is right now, your opinion, based on the years you've been doing this, do you see downturn and increase when the economy is what most people would call a recession at the moment? What's your temperature on the market in down economic times? I've never actually perceived any economic downturn or recession. Okay. There's always an opportunity. 16 some years ago, coming into the MA space, I was a contrarian that did everything against what typical sell side MA practitioners were doing. They were charging retainers. I didn't want to charge a retainer. They were representing for one to five years. I wanted to represent for eight months. I really wanted to do everything different to make sure that I was treating my clients like a priority and not just a number. But what happens is that buyers pivot. Right now, the folks that are really hurting are main street businesses, businesses like mom and pop shops, right? That are under $2 million in revenue. Those are your restaurants. Those are your gas stations. Those are your dry cleaning businesses because the owners are the business, right? And the folks that are going to buy them, the chances are they don't have money laying around. They're what you call individual investors. So they're going to be soliciting to the debt markets out there, right? The banks. And of course, money isn't as cheap as it used to be. It's more expensive now, right? The interest rate have gone up. And as a result of that, because they can't afford that much money as a result of the interest rates being up, what happens? The multiples drop, right? The area where we play in is lower middle market. We don't necessarily rely on the debt markets. Typically, we're dealing with family offices and private equity firms that have dry capital laying around, committed capital given from investors ready to deploy and ready to go. From what I've seen, the state of today's economy, that transactions have not been affected. Mm. I'll tell you what did happen. Last year, third and fourth quarter, a lot of private equity firms and family offices, they weren't investing. They're too busy looking at the news, looking at the market and seeing what's happening and kind of froze. And, you know, at the end of fourth quarter, the investors that have given money to private equity firms to the tune of three to $400 million said, Hey guys, if you guys aren't going to invest this money, I'll give it to somebody else too. Because what Uh they're trying to do is offset those losses that are in the market to buy a business. Buying a business is the most lucrative thing you could do in terms of return. You can never get returns like you do unless you're buying businesses. So the easiest way to grow is to buy a business, to create wealth in this country is to have an asset liquidation to sell a business. So right now what we're seeing is dry capital ready to deploy. Now it's pivoted. So right now the focus where it was in buying businesses across a variety of different industries, right now it's more focused on industries that are perceived hot, like essential businesses, like HVAC businesses, plumbing businesses, electrical contracting businesses, businesses that folks need every single day. Those are very, very important. Also healthcare is really hot, right? Behavioral health businesses, mm. vet clinics has been a major consolidation in that market. Really? E-commerce and logistics, that's huge. And that really surged after COVID, right? Where everybody's sitting at home ordering products online. It used to be that manufacturing and distribution was the backbone of our country. I think e-commerce and logistics is. Our country mm. doesn't function without it, to be honest. So those businesses sell really well, as well as uh, SaaS businesses, IT services businesses, and government contracting businesses sell really well too, especially yeah. the ones that have low customer concentration. It seems like 
if you're doing the right things, it's going to sell well. If you're doing the right thing, if yeah. the businesses are up, projecting and financials, they have yeah. a good management structure in place, customer concentration is low, and it's well run, yeah, you're going to yeah. get traction. I love it. So as we're kind of running out of time here today, what's your final parting thought for folks? If you're ever thinking about getting your business evaluated or better yet, even exiting, be prepared. Start planning at least. I know, Michael, you said three years in advance. I wish folks did it three years in advance, but minimally <laughs> at least a year in advance, right? Start planning. Yeah, and there's is. ways to plan. If your business has multiple shareholders, make sure that you sit everybody down, that there's a general consensus, that everybody's absolutely ready to sell. Things don't get hairy later on where one person says, no, I don't want to sell. That's where partnership divorces start. Get a business evaluation right away. You know, a year in advance to get a pulse of where your business is. What is the opinion of value of your business? Are you mm. comfortable with that opinion of value? Get some sort of third-party accounting firm involved and get a quality of earnings done. It is expensive to get those, but essentially a quality of earnings is basically a third-party accounting firm comes in, authenticates the revenue and adjusted EBITDA, the earnings of your business. Essentially, that's what you're going to go through anyway when you go through a due diligence process. Why not get that in advance? It increases the multiple on the back end. I'm going to say one more thing. Know how you want to exit. A lot of people don't know what they want. Want, but through a conversation with a qualified M&A advisor, find out the deal structure you want. Do you want to sell 100% of your business? Are you ready to do that? Or do you want to maybe sell, you're still young and you know, want to sell majority of your business, right? To take some chips off the table, get a handsome check, yeah. invest that, put it in your nest egg, and then maybe give up a little bit of equity or retain a little bit of equity, the 10, 20%, and maybe take a second bite of the apple. That's where real wealth is created mm. in America is when you actually retain a little bit of equity have somebody else, you know, like a private equity firm with a blank checkbook, grow your business on their dime. And all you're doing is still being the fixture of the company, which you're yeah. already doing. Love Take it. a lot of the administrative work away. Planning is very important. And I think that you can never go wrong with that. You'll always yeah. be successful. I love it, man. I could just sit here, listen to you talk about this stuff all day. I didn't ask a whole lot of questions today because I was just kind of taking it in. It's a really interesting topic to me. And so uh, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. We could talk for hours about it, but we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> totally <laughs> geek out on m any day. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, I would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast and screenshot it and tag me on LinkedIn or whatever social media you use. So thank you again for joining us today and we'll see you next time.